Romans chapter 9. So we're going to jump in here. Um, 9 through 11, again, a section. Uh, this book of Romans breaks up really clearly. Everybody kind of sees the movements of 1 through 8 in terms of doctrine, 9 through 11 in terms of people would say dispensation or the way God's working through history, and then 12 through the rest of the book. So uh, it would be in some ways easy where we ended, speaking about not being separated from the love of God in 8, to kind of skip over 9 through 11 and go right to chapter 12, verse 1, that talks about, okay, then, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. It would make sense to do that, but Paul doesn't do that uh, because he knows that the people he's writing to, both Jews and Gentiles, have questions about how everything he has just talked about works out in their lives. How is God relating to Jewish people based off of what he has said in the Old Testament and this Gentile church right now? And there's a lot of issues there because there were whole segments of the Jewish church that were still telling the Gentiles that they had to be circumcised or keep the law to be saved. They were working these things out themselves, as we saw in Acts 15. So there's all types of questions still for Jews and Gentiles as to how God and his promises to the nation of Israel worked out. So Paul knows he needs to address that. And these chapters in 9 through 11 are really about, again, God's righteousness in his dealings with elect Israel and this Gentile church now. So uh, Paul, I think we need to remember, was constantly defending the fact that his gospel was not some new innovation. It wasn't a new message. He wasn't changing the message. Right from chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, again, he said, Through him, Jesus Christ, we have received the grace of apostleship for obedience to faith among all nations for his name, among whom you are also called of Christ. So Paul was saying, my message that I received from Jesus in the gospel It comes right from the patriarchs, the promises in the Old Testament, the prophets in the Old Testament, and and even the the Gentiles being brought in is a part of what God said was going to happen, as they talked about in Acts chapter 15. And he needs to explain that this, what he calls in chapter 16, verses 25 through 27 at the end, my gospel, the mystery of my gospel, this, this kind of thing that... We didn't get it first. This confusing period, an unexpected time where God is offering salvation through Jesus to Jew and Gentile. They didn't, they didn't expect that. They weren't ready for that. And it was something that was, that was honestly a confusing part of God's plan for the Jews. Because essentially they expected a kingdom versus a church. They expected to be first among nations versus brought into a family with no separation, no walls dividing them. They expected their Messiah to rule the world, not be a despised group of strangers and pilgrims. And they expected personal peace and prosperity, not to be persecuted and looked down on and made of no reputation. So, These Old Testament promises that they saw 
were, were not what they were immediately living, and they didn't expect to be in that position. So the practical question was for them, what we're going to get to in verse 6, has the word of God taken no effect? Has the word of God failed? Are the things that he said to us not true? What, what is going on here? The theological question the way we might put it is, does the church supersede or fulfill the nation of Israel and God's eternal plan or election? Or will God literally fulfill his promises still to national Israel? So, again, by way of intro, there are real wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ who believe the church has taken Israel's place in his plan and that the original promises to the Jews as a people no longer stand because they rejected him. And now God is working in a totally different way. I love those brothers and sisters. We simply disagree. Uh, I think there's three big problems with that. I have to do this as an intro. Number one, people who take that position assume that the Old Testament and the New Testament are not on equal footing. That the New Testament has higher authority than the Old Testament. And based on the way the New Testament uses some Old Testament verses, really a smaller number of those verses. Most of the time, I think everybody would agree how they're using them. But because there's a couple uses in rare occasions that are questionable how they're applying it, they say, well, the New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament usage. We would simply say the New Testament and the Old Testament complement each other. One doesn't cancel the other out. And when you look at it that way, you find yourself seeing Israel as Israel and God's promises still going to play out. The second problem is anybody who sees Israel having stepped off the scene and the church taking their place has to prove that the clear Old Testament prophecies of Israel's restoration, of all those things I kind of mentioned, that they would have a kingdom that they would, Jesus would rule and reign from Jerusalem, that they would sit under their, their fig tree and their vine, and that there would be peace and prosperity for them, that all those promises don't actually mean what they meant when the first writers wrote them down, that they're essentially changed from that meaning. And that's a really difficult thing to do, particularly because Jesus himself never encouraged anything like that, in fact, he encouraged the opposite. He talked about the kingdom. He told the disciples that they sit on thrones. He told them their reward was still coming. And at the end of it all, after he had died and risen from the dead, breathed on his disciples, said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then the Bible tells us he opened their understanding that they could comprehend the scriptures. As they look, having been taught, and given divine understanding of the scriptures at the risen Jesus Christ, the question they ask him in Acts chapter 1 is, are you at this time going to restore to us the kingdom? That's, that's the question. And Jesus doesn't say, no, you guys don't get it. You lost the kingdom. He says, it's not in, the, in these times and seasons. God has those. Not for you right now. I got a different plan for you at the moment. So, uh, I think we just see all the Old Testament and New Testament prophecy is going to be fulfilled literally and not spiritually alone. So theology can be both, I think, for us, both and 
versus either or. And what I mean by that is sometimes people get caught up in things like the tabernacle wasn't just symbolism. The tabernacle was both a literal tent and symbolic. It wasn't either a tent or symbolic. It was both of those things. And a lot of those prophecies in the Old Testament were literal prophecies that are still literally going to be fulfilled and also symbolic of other bigger things that the writers could see or could not see. So in, in the, I think the rush for some good men and women of Christ to, to emphasize the work of Jesus Christ and also to emphasize equality in the body of Christ, they forget that equality of salvation doesn't always mean sameness of function or distinction. So just because we're saved in the same way doesn't mean that there aren't different roles for men and women still within the body of Christ or the family of Christ. It doesn't mean that there aren't still different roles in terms of spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to different people. It doesn't mean that there's still not differences in eternal reward, as the Bible makes very clear. And it doesn't mean that there's still not differences in God's role and function for both the church and the people of Israel. So I say that just to say, we believe the word of God makes it clear and is going to make it clear in this section that God still has a purpose and a plan for the nation of Israel. And uh, I say that as an intro just because I don't want to hit it every single time as we read through. If you are a person who is still seriously thinking through these things, again, I recommend that you read Has the Church Replaced Israel by Michael Vlach, V-L-A-C-H. If you want to seriously study the issue, that's a great place to start. And if you can read that book and you still say, I think the church has taken Israel's place, more power to you. Okay, You're still saved. I think that's great. But... He, he lays out the case pretty simply there. So you have to have a couple presuppositions before you come to the text to get to that point. Um, I think it is very difficult. Paul here is going to talk about, in these chapters, the nation of Israel and God's plan. And he's going to talk about it very clearly. So uh, let's begin in verse 1. He says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Paul here, he, he jumps into, obviously, a new kind of theme. He's brought us to this heavenly place in Romans 8. He's taken us to these incredible blessings and salvation, the reception of the Holy Spirit, and all these various things that come with that to the place where we're virtually glorified in God's eternal purpose and plan, being conformed into his image and likeness, never separated from his love. And then he comes to this spot. Uh, Some people see it kind of almost as, as like, how did we get there? To me, it makes sense because the guy who's just talking about 
such heavenly things about salvation can't get out of his mind that his own people, the Jews, are without these things. Uh, Of all the people in the Bible, he of all people knew what Jewish religious life without God was actually like. And talking about the incredible blessings and realities in Christ, he is thinking on his mind, I, I, he says, tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. And because he was constantly slandered for being somebody who didn't care about his heritage or the truth of the Old Testament, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. He wanted to see his people know God and come into all these blessings that he's been talking about. He's so brokenhearted that he says, for I could wish, if it were possible almost, that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. He he steps into this place where he says, I would give myself for them. A pretty incredible Christ-like heart. I think the only other man in the Bible who says anything like this, other than, of course, Jesus Christ, was Moses, who in Exodus 32 says something very similar. God blot me out, have mercy on them, to, to surrender yourself to see others step into the love of God. That, that's what's in Paul's heart here. And he begins to list out all these particular blessings that were given to the Israelites, the Jews, that should have made them aware of the truths that he was just talking about. Instead, they didn't for most of them. He says to them was given the adoption first. Israel was called God's son or sons through the Old Testament, Exodus 4, 22 through 23, Deuteronomy 7, 6. Isaiah 66, 22, Amos 3, 2, Hosea 1, 10, 11, 1. It's on the recording if you want to look at them. The glory, God's presence in the pillar, in the tabernacle, in the temple with them. The covenants given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. You can move through multiple ones. The giving of the law, certainly at Sinai, the Ten Commandments, this incredible reflection of who God was. The service of God, that being the worship of God that was true and accessible, that you, you couldn't actually worship God other ways. God taught them, this is how I am to be worshipped. You couldn't make a golden calf and worship him because that's not who he was. They had the truth of how to acceptably worship God. The promises, so many filling the Old Testament, conditional, unconditional, The fathers, they had a history of faithful witnesses. They could look back and see those who had given examples. And the greatest one, he says, whom according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God, amen. On top of it all, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was and is a Jew. The the king assumed their nationality. That the mighty God of Isaiah 9, 6 is also in the flesh an Israelite. 
And when Christ came, he came as one of us. Not a surfer white guy, right, as people make pictures sometimes. Not as any, he came as a Jew, according to the flesh. Yet, he doesn't just leave him there. He says, who is over all the eternally blessed God, amen. He's more than just a Jew, according to the flesh. There's some debate as to whether Christ is to be connected to eternally blessed God or Paul is doing a different kind of doxology here. Um, I think those issues are more theological than they actually are in the simple reading of it. Paul is simply making clear that the Messiah is also God. Uh, And I believe he does that for two reasons. One, he's exalting the majesty of the divine nature. And two, he's reminding Israel, Jesus might be Israeli, but he's also the God that's eternal. He's overall. You're not the only one with a claim to him here, as he's going to show as he moves on, that he has responsibility toward the world and all people. So, you know, I... I think this might be a little technical for us, but I think it's important to see, for some reason, the Holy Spirit, before he goes into these really theological things that people want to argue about, wants to lay down Paul's heart for his people in this instruction, not only for them, but also for us. Because I think the way Paul is loving them is the way that God loves people. It's a reflection of that. Certainly, God's love being perfect, Paul's still imperfect. But Paul was a pretty incredible reflection of God's love for not only just people, but the Jews. He, he, stayed, he got saved. He begins immediately preaching the gospel. They want to kill him. They got to sneak him over a wall in a basket to get him out of the city. He goes right back to Jerusalem where he's sharing the gospel there with the religious leaders who he used to be one. You know that's not making them happy. They want to kill him there. They got to get him out of there. He wants to stay. He doesn't want to leave. But they send him away. He agrees. He's constantly under false accusation from his own people. Acts 21, 28, the crowd says, This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defied the holy place. This is the guy who teaches everybody everywhere to hate us. This is, this is what the Holy Spirit says his heart is, and that's what the people in the world say Paul is. And in the middle of that, everywhere he went, he went to a synagogue first, the Jews first, and would begin to preach the gospel to him, and they would harass him and beat him up and chase him around and follow him to other cities. I don't know about you. If that was my experience in this church, I'd probably leave. Right? Like the, the, the love that he had, these are not just words. Like his life played this out in a pretty incredible way. He is, he is grieved for these people. He knows them. He was them. And God has stirred his heart for them. But his love is, I think, incredibly mature in the sense that Paul is fully independent, but yet he is not indifferent to them. It, like, like God is. God loves us. He, he is fully independent of us, though. God does not need a single one of us. He didn't, he didn't need to create us. He didn't need to save us. 
He is 100% independent. Father, Son, Holy Spirit would have been totally fine without us. Yet, he is not indifferent to us. In fact, he's so not indifferent that he took upon himself the form of a man, entered into this world, took our sin, died for us. The Father gave his own Son to love us. And, and those two, I think, edges here are seen. There's a balance there. As independent, Paul loved God, and he would give himself to the Lord. He gave up all his national privileges for God. He gave up his culture. The, the people that were his people looked at him as, you're no longer a Jewish person, basically. You're not one of us. You tell everywhere in the world to be against us. He, he had prestige. He had a cush life. He had everything provided for him. He gave up his home, family, friends. All, all the respect and money, the things that people could want in life. And he says, and I considered all of those things, but dumb, like trash, to know him. Paul was fully independent. He, his love for God was not being pulled by any of those things, yet he was not indifferent. He stepped back into this world. He put his own life on the line. The safety of his heart, his heart was continually grieved, and he allowed it to be continually grieved for those that he loved. Didn't need them, but he loved them. He had joy in Christ. He had purpose in life. He said all that stuff, it's like trash. But yet, he didn't just leave them alone. And I, I think for us, before we talk about any of these other things, the challenge of having this type of heart, a mature, balanced type of love, the love that God has, there's a lot of talk about love in the world. But for some of us, we're not independent enough because God isn't enough for us. We're not content with God. We can love him until we have to also leave behind home or careers, respect for men, friends, family, kids, grandkids. For some people, it's certain sins. They, they can't even imagine a God that would call them to be independent from certain types of actions or lifestyles. We don't want to leave those things behind. For others, we're too indifferent. Maybe we're okay leaving those things behind. We've given up family, friends, lifestyle. We're good with God, but we're also good with them without God, and that's not okay. Because that's not what his heart is. We can't work to isolate ourselves or our hearts. They should be grieved for the lost and even the evil that we see around us. And for some reason, that's what God wants us to see. And I think before we hit the technical things, you know, we're fighting a similar cultural battle that Paul was, whether we know it or not. And I think the challenge is, does my love look like this type of love? Is our love for the Lord mature enough to be independent, but not indifferent? 
independent from all, but not indifferent to any. That's a challenge. It was for me as I read through this. And Paul, he can say in the Holy Spirit, I, I have continual grief in my heart for these people. I, w- I want them to step into all the blessings that he's just been talking about. They had all the privileges, all the spiritual privileges. They should know these things. So now he's going to get into the specifics of this. And I think these things, again, were practical for them. And particularly the beginning of chapter or verse 6, this is the central question of the next three chapters. And I think the context it gives us, which is this. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Because this was their question. This, has the clear word of God failed or been broken or taken no effect? Is God still righteous in his actions toward elect Israel and this new church that Paul is talking about? How does all this work out? Here's what he said. Is that still true? And I think it's important to keep it in mind because there's a lot of theological issues people have as we talk about election. And people use these passages to talk about election in a lot of ways. And some people even talk about election as if it's like a a defense for unbelievers or people who don't believe in election. Paul, we have to remember, Paul is not writing uh, to work out our modern theological systems. That was not his point here. That was not what was on his heart. And this is not a defense of, of God's will and election for people who don't believe in it. In fact, it's the exact opposite. He's talking to the Jews, the, the nation of Israel, who believed, believed in election maybe way too much. Like, we're elect and you're all going to hell. That was their basic attitude. So they believe in election. They don't have a problem with election. They believe we were picked God's people. Their problem is, we were picked God's people. What are you saying? I'm not going to get all the things God promised. They, they believe that wholeheartedly as a fact. So his whole discussion is going to be built around kind of these three, these three challenges or questions. So verse 6, it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, right? Is, has the word of God failed? Verse 14, what do we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is he unfair then? If it hasn't fa- failed, is he unfair in how this is all working out? And then in verse 19, well, why does he still find fault? Why does God hold people accountable? So so that's where the discussion is going. Paul is defending God's word, God's righteousness, and God's ways here. So let's read on. 6a, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Israel, again, meant prince of God or governed by God. Paul is having a play on words here. And his initial answer is very simple. That true Israel was always an elect Israel, not a natural national elect election. Like just because you're born a Jew never meant that you were going to fully step into all of God's promises. So we'll read down a little bit because he's going to then build a couple different examples on top of that. 
For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of the promise that at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So Paul steps in. I, this is just my personal belief, that little phrase there right in the beginning of six, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. I think that's something that he said that just summed up the whole issue right off the bat. Because when he would say that to a group of Jews, the initial reaction would be like, what are you talking about? What, what do you mean? That would blow their minds. So he immediately follows that up with two examples that they would know and they would have to admit to. And the first thing he does is he goes to Isaac and he says the promises of God were given through Isaac to Abraham through Isaac. You are going to have a son. That son is going to be the son of promise. You and Sarah, not you and Hagar. And every Jew would have to admit, no, no, the promises are not just to Abraham's kids, they're to Isaac. So they would say, yeah, no, 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 Ishmael, he's not the same as us. God had a specific promise given through Isaac that would come through him. So it's not all the blood sons of Abraham that God was giving his purposes to. It was through this son, Isaac. There was a specific one. So I think he would assume, and he probably had people say, well, yeah, but, okay, but that's because Isaac was a special miracle son. And then anybody who came from Isaac's line, we're all in. He says, actually, well, no, because Isaac had two sons as well, Jacob and Esau. And when they were still in Rebekah's womb, before they had done any works, before they had earned any type of merit. It wasn't because they did anything on their own. If, if it was because of works or merit, God could have never said verses 12 and 13. Right? The, the promises were going to then not be to the elder, but to the younger. The elder would serve the younger. God said his purposes were going to come through Jacob. Jacob, have I loved Esau? Have I hated? So, if it was just about birth, how could he even say that to those two? How could, how could he say to one, Esau have I hated and Jacob have I loved? No, God had a specific way that he was going to work out his mercy toward the people of Israel. And it was going to be in relation to, as he's already established, to faith in the word of God and what he was saying. So these, these Jews who would say, but like, we're Jews. We're from Abraham. We're Abraham's children. This was the same battle that John the Baptist and Jesus fought. John the Baptist, when he looked 
This wasn't something totally new. At the Pharisees, he would say to them in Matthew 3, 9, Don't think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Like we're in, we're born from Abraham. God can raise up children from the stones. Don't say that to yourself. And then he warns them, the axe is laid at the the root of the tree. It's about to be burned up. Jesus would say in Luke 13, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. And he expands it. They will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. Jesus talking to Jews here about not inheriting the promises, being thrust out of the kingdom. So when he brings this up, he's saying it was never God's plan, just if you're born a Jew, that you would step in all the promises. That's never what he said. Even from the bat in Abraham's kid, it would come through Isaac. It wasn't promised the same way to Ishmael. And then if you say, well, after, yeah, but after Isaac, then it was, he said, no, because what happened after that? There was two sons, and God chose to work through one, a particular one. It wasn't just by blood. If it was by blood, it would be Isaac. It would be all of Abraham's other sons. It would be Jacob and Esau. It would have been the same. But that's not how God was working. So Paul is not trying to decide here, again, for modern individuals, whether or theologians, election is national or individual alone. Paul is making the point that God's word is not broken because God's election of Israel was never strictly national. I didn't elect everybody who was born. Never said that. That that wasn't how God worked things out. The nation will exist. He's going to go on. God's going to keep the nation of Israel alive, but there will always be a believing remnant as there was in Paul's day right then and as there is today to actually believe in God by faith, but it was never the whole thing. It was never everybody at one time. So the, the initial reaction to that is going to be verse 14. What do we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? People are going to say, oh, God's not, God's not being fair. What do, you, what do you mean? Is he ripping us off then? Is he unjust toward Israel? Is he unfair in his way of doing things? Paul's answer is really simple. He says, certainly not. No, he's not. Because what does he say? Verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. So they're saying, well, Paul already knows, as I said, I'm sure he's had plenty of these discussions. People are going to say, well, you're making God unrighteous then, that that's, that's unfair. He's not being true to his word. And Paul just is saying, actually, that's not true at all. Because Injustice would be withholding some good that we deserve or inflicting some evil that was undeserved. And God's not doing either with the nation of Israel. And really, they don't deserve anything. What he does say is God spoke 
to Israel through Moses. And the context was, of course, a time when Israel had just broken God's covenant and made a golden calf. They received the covenant and they broke it like they didn't even get through. Who knows? Many like days at all. They, they immediately went to idolatry. That's the context. And God made it clear that he has a right to show mercy and compassion however he wants. I'm the one that chooses the way this all works out. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Israel didn't earn their heritage through their own will or works. God didn't owe them something. They weren't elected by God or chosen by him because of something they did. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8 Moses would say to the people, the Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And I think Paul has this passage in mind as he's talking about it. He's saying, look, If God is choosing how he's going to show mercy and compassion, it's not just based off of what somebody else wills or wants to do or runs, but of God who showed mercy. God is and always is the first cause. He had a plan before the foundation of the world about how he was going to both create the world, redeem it, call out a people for himself. Part of that plan was to use the nation of Israel and how he was going to be merciful toward them in the world and how he was going to show judgment or wrath. That was all up to him. And there's nothing outside of God forcing him to act or he's no longer God. If there's anything outside of him that forces him to do something, there's something more powerful than him. So, God is a free agent. God is the free agent. He's the only free agent, and he's only bound to those he willingly binds himself to. You want to know why God loves you? Because he loves you, Moses says. And then he says, and because he's going to keep the oath that he made to you. He bound himself to you, so he will keep that. That's, that's why he acts the way he does. So, God's purpose will ultimately use all men to declare himself powerful, even somebody as powerful as Pharaoh. For notice Paul says in 17, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, or the the wording there means made you to stand, that God preserved Pharaoh in that moment, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. The idea there is how, how God's purpose is worked out in the world, how he wants to show mercy, how he wants to harden and show his power. He's the one who decides all that. And, and it isn't up to human beings. He's, he's made the plan Beforehand, That's why you can look at two boys in the womb and already say which one he's going to work through and which one he isn't. Because he already knows where it's all going. Now, how does this work out in time? Does Pharaoh harden his own heart first and then God confirm him in that? Does God remove his grace from Pharaoh because he knows Pharaoh desires sin and rebellion? 
guess what? Paul's not telling us because that's not the point. He's not working out our modern theology. Paul's point to these confused Israelites, his countrymen according to the flesh, is God never guaranteed them the promises simply because they were born Jews. And then, in fact, God was always very clear about the fact that he reserved the right to show mercy to whom he wanted and the way he wanted and to harden whom he will to show his power. So then the question that people would say is, well, then, verse 19, well, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Paul, Paul comes to the point now where he understands the question is going to be, okay, well, if, if God set this whole thing up and he chooses the way that mercy is going to be shown and his judgment is going to be shown in the world, then why are we accountable for things? Why, why, are we, why, are he, why is he holding the Jewish people accountable for this? Paul's point is simply this, that no one can resist God's will, yes, but they're basically saying, we don't like the way God has chosen to show mercy or harden against his will. Like, I, don't, I don't like that setup. You want to know why we don't like that setup? Because we're not God. And Paul simply points that out here. It's like looking at the plan of the world and people saying, well, I don't like the... Like, why did he have to make the tree and the garden? I don't like that. I would have done it a different way. What is that supposed to mean? So what? Well, I don't like the way God chose to show mercy by making Noah build a boat. And then the rest of the world was an example of his wrath. Too bad. Like, he never said he was going to consult you first. He's God. Well, I don't like the way that this is set up right here. What do you mean now the Jews had to accept Jesus as the Messiah and step into this thing called the church and we got to prolong our desire for the kingdom. Guess what? This is how God is showing mercy in the world. And your choice is either conform to that or be conformed to allow God to show his power in your life. God's will, again, C.S. Lewis says, is going to be done either way. But whether I accomplish his will, like John the Apostle or Judas, matters very much to me personally. And God is going to show himself powerful either way. Paul brings in what they would know very well, this image and language of the potter and the clay. It's used numerous times in scripture. Job 10.9, Isaiah 26.19, Isaiah 45.9, Isaiah 64.8, Jeremiah 18.2-6. 2 Timothy 2, 20 through 21. This is language that they would be very familiar with. And the, the reality is that Paul is just pointing out, look, he's the creator, you're the creation. And he's showing the foolishness of this complaint that whether we like it or not, 
there's somebody over us. And we are just in the process of the plan. And the, the problem I have and that people have is when they come face to face with reality that we're not running the universe, we don't like it. And, and the Jews, they might look at what, what was happening and say, I don't, like, I don't like it that he sent us into Egypt and made us suffer and then had Pharaoh stand up and resist him so that he could show his power. Well, great. You could complain about that, but what does that mean? If you don't like it, he gave you the mind to even think about it. You can't think of something better than him. You're still a creation. He's the creator. He is going to show mercy in his way, and thank God he does, because he's perfect. And he's already established that fact, his incredible love toward us. Nobody would have ever come up with the plan that he came up with. And he's going to harden those whom he will. So the question simply becomes, I think, particularly for these Jews, uh, they might not have liked where he was. They might not like how God is showing mercy through Jesus Christ, through the church. They might not like the fact that, that God is long-suffering with vessels prepared for wrath or destruction. But Paul, Paul doesn't explain how that all works out. Again, people want to get into discussions. How are they prepared? Are they prepared by their own works? Are they prepared by God's hand? That's not the point. Paul's point is that God is not answerable to the Israelites or to us for the ways he's chosen to display his mercy or his long-suffering and wrath. He doesn't have to give an explanation. He's going to be true to his own character one way or another, but it's pretty foolish to assume that you can just look at the plan and say, well, I don't like the way it is. He's like, who are, who are you, oh man, to bring that up? Who are you to think you can just complain about the way God has designed literally the plan of the universe? If I could put it in a more simple way, it's not God's responsibility to conform to us. It's our responsibility to conform to him. He's the creator, we're the creation. It doesn't matter what any human being thinks. I don't even believe in God. It doesn't matter, you live in his world. He created you out of the dust of the earth and breathed the breath of life into you. You're going to breathe your last one day and turn into dust. That's the world you live in. And then you're going to stand before the creator. And these Jews, they, they had given, been given a certain cultural kind of thought and identity that is now being challenged because they find themselves outside of the way God was going to, they thought, show mercy or judgment in the world. And they didn't like it. And Paul's saying, he never promised you what you thought you were being promised. God never said that Israel gets in just because they're Israel. Not all Israel is Israel. You can see that in the birth of Isaac and with Jacob and Esau. He's elected a certain way to show his mercy in the world. And if you're like, I don't like that, well, too bad. He's God. It's the perfect way. And you and I have to conform to him. And it would be important for these Jews. He's going to turn this, I think, to a more positive, encouraging way for them. But it's important for us to be humble, I think, about who we are and where we are. 
And this does filter down to us in life. We might not be Jews, but the reality is all of us come to a place in life where, certain, where aspects of life are out of our control, and we have to trust that they're in God's control. Like what, what time, what age we're born in, who we are, our gender, our health, our place in life. You end up having to say, Lord, this is where you have me. And either I'm going to conform myself to your plan and step into your mercy because that's who you are. Or I'm going to find myself fitted for your plan in a different way, and you'll show your wrath and your power. And nobody's going to win over God in the end. This is the way things are. It's not the way things should be. It is the way things are. And even the most powerful wills in the world who seem like they can work outside of it, like a pharaoh, God says, actually, no, I'm raising you up. And it can make for hard questions. But Putin doesn't get to choose a path that's outside of God's path. The world we live in is under his control. He is good. He is who he says he is. But he's the potter and we're the clay. And there comes a place where there has to be a certain amount of humility and understanding in our interaction with him. God, I can't run the world better than you. We especially in our information age where we can touch base on like anything, we, we can feel that we're much more informed than we actually are uh, very often about things. I remember there was a time on a Sunday morning, a dude came down after the service, just a friend that somebody brought. He wasn't saved at all. Um, and he just came up and he wanted to argue a little bit. And he just looked at me and he was like, the Bible is just filled with errors. Like, how can you even believe this? And part of me wanted to add, like, this dude's not a, a textual scholar or anything. You know, part of me wanted to say, like, who, who are you? Like, what are you even saying right now? All right, have you studied this for your life? Is this, did you just Google the Bible has errors? Okay, Google answers to the Bible having errors, right? Like, this is, but I just said, all I said was, hey, man, like, nice to meet you. Um, but if it was that easy, don't you think that everybody would see that? And he just stood there for a second. He was like, yeah, you're right. You know, he could just admit, I'm not an expert. I'm kind of talking like you're an expert. I'm not really an expert on it. And he didn't even really want to talk about that anymore. So there's there's way too much in us where we get a little information on something and we act like we're experts on something. And and we get a little bit of of some experience in life or thought about life. And all of a sudden, we're going to tell God how he needs to run things. And Paul's just saying, that's not how things work. Who are you that you can think that you can reply to God? Tell him how to show his mercy or wrath in the world, who he should raise up when and where to show his power. That's not how things work. What if, 22, he says again, God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even, Paul now, us, whom he called, 
not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Guys, look, don't you understand? He's pleading with them. You are in a time right now that God has, he's beforehand for glory preparing things. And he's being really patient. I know they want the kingdom to come. They want God to show up, defeat all his enemies, and to set up the kingdom and to have them step into all the promises that God had promised. And he's saying, well, that's not the way God's doing things right now. That's not where we find ourselves. He's doing something different right now. He's prepared beforehand people for glory. Us, whom he called, notice, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And they would know that the word of God has promised that this was part of what God was going to do. It wasn't that he wasn't going to do those other things. It's that he also said he was going to do something else, and they've not really thought about this. And they find themselves now in a period where God is showing his mercy through Jesus Christ to both Jew and Gentile in the work of salvation in the church. So he brings up these two examples in 25 through 29 here. He says, first from Hosea, he says, also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. The Jews and Gentiles are now in the flow of God's purposes prepared beforehand, as he said. And he quotes Hosea, and he's going to quote Isaiah here, to establish the fact that in Israel's history, there was always a constant believing remnant which displayed faith in God's word and currently even believed the gospel that Paul preached. And the proof was God's purpose in saving Israel and keeping them was, was still proof that he was going to finish everything that he was going to yet do, which he's going to get to in chapter 11, verse 26. So uh, Hosea, in speaking about the, the prophet's words there in Hosea chapter 2, you can read that whole chapter. Of course, it's a picture of the nation which had given themselves to idolatry, just like Hosea's wife. He marries a prostitute who gives herself away, breaks that covenant, God is saying to his people, I've given you everything and everything I gave you, all the blessings you took and you gave them to Baal. You didn't remember me. And he speaks about then a day where he's going to bring them back, where Baal is no longer going to be in their lips. And the people who were not his people are his people again. That this is the character of who God is. He says, even like in Hosea's day, people who were unfaithful to him, yet because God is who he is in himself, you are not cast off. And he's still like that. If you look around, you see a bunch of other Jews like me and your heart's brokenhearted because they're not God's people. Well, he's still the same God he was in Hosea. And he's going to bring them to himself. But this includes both Jew and Gentile. Peter will pick this up in First Peter as well, chapter 2. They've stumbled the Jews at God's way of showing mercy, his choice in mercy. Yet he is faithful, and he won't cast them off completely. 27 now through 29, he quotes from Isaiah twice, or two sections there. He says, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. 
Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Paul twice quotes from Isaiah here showing God's word anticipated times when only a small number of Israelites would remain. He says, even if, if your number was like the sand of the sea, the Assyrians would come in here, take Israel. There would be just a remnant that would be left, a small group. Isaiah would even name his own son Shear Jashub, which means the remnant will remain. And the kid was supposed to be a living sign of that prophecy in Isaiah 7 and 8. Here he's saying uh, these people would, no matter how many there were, there's just going to be this little remnant left. But God would keep that remnant alive. He wouldn't allow them to be totally wiped out. And he, he prophesies again. He says, unless God had been faithful like that, that, that seed, that little remnant, would have just turned themselves into another Sodom and Gomorrah. Outside of God, Israelites' hope and existence would be totally gone unless he stepped in. Jesus would pick this up again in Matthew 24, verse 22, and say, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. That God is going to, and always promised to, here's what he did promise, he's always going to keep an elect remnant alive in Israel, in his purposes. Even if for no reason in themselves, if they had fully broken his covenant and he should just give them away like he could have with Hosea. Even if they had fully turned themselves into a Sodom and Gomorrah and in his justice, in, in them there is nothing other than what he should judge. And in his justice, he should judge that. There was a place God could fall back and still do the right thing in being faithful and patient and merciful with them. He could fall back into himself in his election and say, I've chosen this plan from the beginning so I can keep you a remnant alive here. All through the Old Testament, he did it. He was doing it in Paul's day right then. There would be a remnant that believed. That was, that was the church in Jerusalem. It was around the world, everywhere Paul went. And it's still today. The Jewish people are still around. Israel's still there. Now, for people who think they're not there, they're still there. That's a miracle. And people try to work around that other ways. Augustine um, famously kind of some of the church fathers, because they couldn't see quite as clearly as we do, we can give them a little space, I think, try to say, well, maybe God's keeping them around as a witness uh, of what happens if you don't obey him. And a lot of people have kind of picked up that theory through the years. The funny thing is the Bible never says anything like that, that God is going to keep an elect remnant alive of Israel to be a witness to the world of what happens when you don't obey him. The Bible never says anything like that. It always says the exact opposite, that because of God is who he is, because he's chosen you, because he loves you because he loves you, 
and he's chosen to be merciful in the ways he wants to be merciful, you will keep a seed. You will keep a remnant. He's going to keep you around so that his purposes are fulfilled in you, ultimately. And that, that remnant gives them hope that their election was safe, that God's eternal purposes were safe, that they could still be walking in them, and that he is going to fulfill them in the end. And, of course, the thing that that gives to us is the same. The God who promised the things he promised to the nation of Israel and has been faithful through the ages and still is, was in Paul's day and is today, is the same God who has promised us all types of wonderful things as the church and that the election Paul talked about, the calling Paul talked about, the predestination Paul talked about the justification and the glorification that Paul talked about in chapter 8 are all going to be true because of who God is. And if you look around the church, like a lot of times in the history of the nation of Israel, you could look around the nation of Israel and be like, it doesn't seem like anybody's there. (laughs) Or it seems like whoever is there is basically Sodom and Gomorrah. Guess what? God's going to be faithful to who he says he is. And what he said he's going to do. And he's going to get you there. And you can walk in his mercy because of who he is. And that election becomes an encouraging thing for them to depend on and to lean on. So he's going to continue to build on that and talk about how they stumbled and need to believe and put their faith in him through chapter 10. But we don't have time tonight. So let's stand. Let's pray. Read ahead, encourage you. Heavenly Father, we do, again, thank you for your word, Lord. We echo the Apostle Peter and say there are things in there that are hard to understand. Um, But, Lord, we thank you for who you are in the middle of it. And that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that you are faithful. And that there's something bigger than us in this world. And in this life, that there's a rock that's higher than I. And Lord, we want to humbly, Lord, surrender ourselves to you. And we recognize that you're the one who moves in the world. And that everything is under your control And that ultimately, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that you're Lord. So we take our place early and happily do that tonight, recognizing you for who you are. Thank you for your patience with us, Lord. You know our weakness. And Lord, I just pray that anybody here um, tonight who came out who needs to just rest, Lord, in your control of things, that they would be able to do that. And, Lord, I pray that certainly in the midst of that, you would as well just give us the right heart of love toward you and toward those around us. We know you said that's your greatest commandment, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves. So, Lord, you have to do that through us, you know, our weakness there as well. Shed your love abroad in our hearts through your Holy Ghost. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.